Anthrax, thought to be the sixth plague visited upon Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, the disease only causes episodic illness in humans. Yet it can cause a particularly gruesome death and can be easily treated if caught early. You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing anthrax during bioterrorism week here on ReachMD. In this segment, we will be focusing on the biology of naturally occurring anthrax. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me is Dr. Nicholas Bergman. Dr. Bergman received his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is currently an assistant professor in the School of Biology at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. He has recently published a paper examining some of the genomic properties of anthrax in the Journal of Bacteriology. Welcome, Dr. Bergman. We're pleased to have you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. So, of course, the first question is, what is the microbe that causes anthrax? Anthrax is caused by Bacillus anthracis, which is a species of bacilli. Now, the bacilli are a genus that are found across the world in soil, and they're pretty common. The anthracis species is one that's less common, but it's unfortunately the one that gets so much attention because it causes anthrax. Do all the microbes in this family exist in a spore form? They do. They exist in two forms. There's a spore form in which the the bacterium is dormant and pretty resistant to just about any harsh environmental condition we can throw at it. And then there's a second form, the vegetative form, in which they grow quite quickly. And the bacterium actually switches between these two forms depending on whether or not the local environment supports growth. So all of the members of the bacilli actually do this switch back and forth between these two forms. Can the bacteria switch to the spore form while it's still in a human? Yes, but probably not the way you're thinking. So typically during a disease, we don't see the transition from vegetative form to spore form until long after death. So not during infection so much as inside a rotting carcass, say, in an animal. Oh, I see. And, of course, that leads to the next question. What are the uh, routes of infection or the types of infection you can get from naturally occurring anthrax? So there are three forms of the disease, and they are largely determined by the route of infection. You have cutaneous, which is by far the most common in naturally occurring cases, where the bacterium enters in a spore form through a break in the skin. You have the intestinal form or gastrointestinal form in which the bacteria gain entry through a break in the mucosal surface in the gut. And then you have the inhalational form in which the bacteria enter through the lungs. In a naturally occurring acquisition of this, I imagine cutaneous is, as you said, most common. How do gastrointestinal and respiratory anthrax compare in commonness and frequency? I think the figures I've seen are roughly 95% of naturally occurring cases are cutaneous. Most of the remaining 5%, I think, in a naturally occurring case are going to be intestinal. And inhalational is really rare in natural cases. Can you go over briefly the symptom constellation among the three different types, starting with cutaneous? Sure. With cutaneous anthrax, basically you have a localized skin infection where we have this large black sore that forms. And that's more or less painless most of the time. And it's self-limiting most of the time also. So you have this large black spore. That's actually where B. anthracis gets its name. Anthracis is from the Greek for coal or black. 
So you have this black sore that heals after about six weeks, and in about 80% of the cases, that's really all you ever have, that you have this local skin infection that's self-limiting and self-clearing. You don't need treatment with antibiotics. Now, unfortunately, in about 20% of the cases, that progresses to a systemic infection, which is almost always fatal. Certainly, once you see this spore, you do get antibiotic treatment, but cutaneous anthrax isn't all that serious if you get treatment promptly. The mortality rate is really quite low with antibiotics. The gastrointestinal case is a little more complicated because it kind of depends on where in the GI tract the infection begins. But there, in some ways, it progresses like a cutaneous form in the sense that you have a local infection that spreads systemically. The key difference here is that it basically always goes systemic. So you have a progression pretty quickly from local infection to sepsis. And so we have a really high mortality rate in the intestinal form of anthrax. Is that marked by the onset of nausea and vomiting and diarrhea? Yeah, you do have that. I think those tend to occur a little bit before, but near the same time as some of the sepsis-associated symptoms. So the progression is really quite rapid. And what about inhalational anthrax? Inhalational anthrax is kind of a unique case because up till, well, not too long ago, we really didn't know a whole lot about it because it, it almost never occurs in nature. And actually, historically, inhalational anthrax has been known by other names like wool sorters disease because it was so specific to people in those occupations. The symptoms there tend to be pretty mild for the first couple of days as the infection is beginning. Now, it's important to note that this isn't a pneumonia. You don't have growth of the bacteria in the lungs right away. What you have is a situation where the spores enter, they're taken up by resident phagocytes, transported to the lymph nodes in the chest. From there, it almost always goes systemic, straight from the lymph nodes. So basically, you have kind of a symptomless or nearly symptomless progression from inoculation to sepsis and toxemia. And so you tend to have a very rapid onset of symptoms several days after infection, and the symptoms actually progress so quickly that diagnosis is almost always impossible to catch early enough in order to have an easy treatment. So basically you have a situation where the patients show almost nothing or they have kind of a mild flu-like set of symptoms and the next day they're crashing and they're in shock and they need you know, multi-antibiotic therapy in an ICU setting and even then the mortality rate is over 50%. To summarize, there are three forms. The vast majority are the more indolent, cutaneous form of anthrax, then followed by the rather rare form of uh, GI and even more rare form of inhalational anthrax, which tends to be uh, much more mortal. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Nicholas Bergman, an expert on the biology and genomics of anthrax. This segment has been focusing on the biology of naturally occurring anthrax. So what about clinical testing? My impression from reading the literature is that if you have to rely on a laboratory test in a clinical setting, the patient's going to die. That is, antibiotics have to be started before labs can come back. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's generally the rule now. There are starting to be more options for doing a much quicker diagnosis, but historically and even up until, you know, maybe a year or so ago, the best method was a blood smear where you're actually just doing a microscopic examination of blood and doing some cultures. And so what they had advised always was starting antibiotic therapy, you know, as soon as anthrax was suspected, 
long before the lab results would confirm that. Now you're starting to get some rapid diagnostics that are coming through that's driven somewhat by the need for rapid detection systems, say by the Postal Service, that kind of thing, because those systems can be adapted. But definitely the traditional lab tests were too slow. And what would you expect to see on a smear? You wouldn't see the spores. You'd see the bacterium, I would think. Right. You'd see uh, large rod-shaped bacilli, typically encapsulated. B. anthracis makes a a poly-D-glutamic acid capsule that prevents further phagocytosis once it's in the bloodstream. While we're on the subject of its capsule, what are the constituents of the spore? How does it resist boiling and antibiotics and chemicals so readily? What do we know about the capsule of the spore? The spore itself, the structure, is is known to some extent. It, I always think of it looking like a golf ball a little bit. It's multi-layered, and they're quite compact. And it actually, when it makes the spore, the bacterium actually pushes a lot of the water out. So it's dehydrated, it's very compact, it's shielded a lot of its key proteins and certainly the genome in a way by its, by its compaction. You've got kind of a paracrystalline layer of proteins around it, and you've got several other layers of a dense carbohydrate followed by another protein core. So basically, it's just kind of a, a really compact shape that shields bacterium well from a lot of physical stresses. Chemical stresses... In that case, we're a little less sure of how the bug is actually able to withstand some of the treatments that we've seen it live through. You know, chlorine bleach, for instance, it really doesn't seem to mind dilute concentrations of chlorine bleach. It doesn't seem to mind pH extremes, either high or low. It doesn't seem to mind a lot of conditions that I would normally think of as incredibly harsh for bacteria to survive in. And in a lot of those cases, we're not sure how it's doing that. That's still an open question to a degree. What about anthrax through history? I opened with the notion that the sixth plague may have actually been an anthrax epidemic among the pharaoh's livestock. What references uh, are there uh, beyond the Bible to anthrax in history? Was it known to the Greeks and the Romans? It was. It's commonly thought that Homer's reference to a plague sent by Apollo was actually anthrax. Virgil writes about anthrax in his, in his Georgics. Certainly we see writings you know, pretty widespread in a lot of ancient civilizations, talking about anthrax, talking about the need to burn the bodies after an anthrax epidemic, that kind of thing. How does anthrax become epidemic among humans? I thought it just wasn't that highly contagious. It's not contagious person to person. Typically what we see is an outbreak rather than an epidemic, and the outbreak will occur usually in conjunction with a cattle outbreak or a sheep outbreak. So you'll just have a large number of cases in the people dealing with those carcasses or with those animals. So you really get it simply through contact with infected animals, and that's really the only way it occurs in nature. Exactly. How did people get interested in this as a biological weapon? This show was mostly focused on naturally occurring anthrax, but I do want to touch a little bit about how it became a notion even to use anthrax as a weapon. Well, I think there are a few things that make the anthracis a particularly good biological weapon first is the spores are incredibly hardy. So if you can convert the bacteria reliably to spore form, they store for years without ever losing viability. They're resistant to fluctuations in the environment, so they store very easily without having to worry about conditions that you're storing them in. That is the infectious form. So you can go directly from a form that's been stored for several years into a bomb or some sort of dispersion method and 
not worry about converting it back into an infectious form or testing that, you know it's going to work. The other thing is that if you can aim to do an inhalational inoculation of your target population, you're going to have a really high lethality rate. That's also kind of attractive. The infectious dose is not all that high. It's certainly not as low as some of these other bacteria like Francisella. But the infectious dose or the lethal dose is something like 10,000 spores. And if you figure that a gram of spores contains roughly a trillion, well, you get the idea. I want to thank Dr. Nicholas Bergman, a nationally recognized expert on anthrax who has been our guest. We have been discussing the biology of naturally occurring anthrax. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.